Hello, it's Brody. I love bringing mummification to you each week, and if you'd like to support me to keep doing that, you can make a once-off donation through the Acast supporter feature. There's no regular subscription, and your donation will help pay our music license, buy audio gear, and put fuel in my car so I can keep interviewing the amazing women who share their stories with us. There's a link in the show description and episode show notes. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Mummification. I'm your host, Brody Matner. This podcast is a space for women and parents to talk about how they're feeling. And sometimes they feel like swearing. So this episode may not be suitable for young ears. Brandy Jordan is a woman you want in your corner after you've had a baby. Brandy is a mum of three. She's a lactation consultant, paediatric sleep specialist, newborn care specialist, has her master's in social work, and is a globetrotting postpartum doula to the stars who splits her time between LA and the south of France. Um, in 2009, she founded The Cradle Company, which is a pregnancy and postpartum resource centre in the US. And in 2018, she founded the National Association of Birth Workers of Colour. Brandy, thank you for talking with me today. Thanks so much for having me, Brody. Uh, so I ask all my guests the same first question, which isn't parenting or mum related at all. Um, <laughs> if you were stuck on a desert island and you could take one meal, one drink and one personal item what would they be? Oh, this is hard. One meal, I would take some sort of like pho, I think, like, you know, Vietnamese pho soup, something like that. Mm -hmm. Drink, uh, you know, it's really simple. I would take a Perrier with some lemon in it. (laughs) (laughs) I love sparkling water. So not that easy, but I love a good sparkling water. (laughs) So, uh, and one personal item uh, it would probably be my phone, sadly, because um, I think like my life is on there. I have all my books with Audible. I have my music. Like yep. I have tons of entertainment to last me on this island by myself. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the only person who said phone. <laughs> this is where we come to in 2021 that if my dying request is to take my phone with me is really sad but let's be honest that's what I would take that's fair <laughs> enough um now when I was doing my research on you I came across the term vaginal steaming mm-hmm. I thought that'd be a nice place to start because I had not yeah. heard of it before <laughs> 
So, yeah. So um, it sounds, I, I feel like in the States, it became a big deal for people who follow like Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop and her, you know, her podcast and her books and that, you know, and her, her site, she talked about it, you know, several years ago. Um, and people are like, what is this weird thing that people are doing? And I'm just like, wait a minute, people have been doing this for a long time in most cultures. And basically vaginal steaming, um, you might hear people call it womb steaming, yoni steaming. It's basically a way of helping to either um, open up um, the vaginal area to release any kind of toxins that might be there, build up stress, um, et cetera. But they've done some, you know, recent studies and showing that it actually has ability to help to heal like um, maybe scarring or adhesions that people have had during mm-hmm. birth or, you know, having previous um, infections and things like that. Um, it can help with people who are looking to improve their fertility, to have who have issues with their menstrual cycle. And it's basically this, like you're sitting your butt on some steam and <laughs> letting it do its work. You know, at the most basic form, it would be just using, you know, steam and like high quality, say sea salt would be enough to kind of help do what you need to do. So, um, you know, it can really help with, uh, people who have painful periods, um, particularly in my case, working with people in postpartum, you know, thinking about when you've been pregnant, obviously you haven't been having your cycle during that time. And most women are dealing with that lochia after having the baby. It can help to make that process go a little bit faster. It can help for them if they have any sort of tearing or, um, you know, swelling, it can, it can just kind of help bring everything back together, heal the womb, um, and really just provide, you know, a a natural way to kind of deal with um, our fertility and our cycles, you know, during postpartum and beyond. I've got a couple of questions to do with culture later on, because I know that you work within several different cultures over in the States and in France. Um, So I'd I'd really like to go back to that because I think it's really fascinating. Um, But I thought I might start with asking why you do what you do. Um, I've always done what I do. So that's one thing. So, you know, I started this really young. um, I want to say it was about 19 or 20 when I got into this work. And uh, in 2000, well, I started volunteering in a birth center and I want to say it was probably 1999. So long, long time ago. At that point, I was probably about about 19. Um, And there wasn't even such word as a doula back then. Um, They were called monotrice. um, And they were more like just really the the midwife's assistant. And so that was kind of the training that I went through at that time. I basically cold called a birth center because I'd heard on NPR about this old timey career called the Wiffery. Uh, and for whatever reason, they were crazy enough to let a 19 year old come uh, <laughs> and shadow and, and learn from them. And I kind of was just hooked. Like my first experience, uh, it was a water birth, first time baby. They had this 10 pound baby oh. and it just changed everything that I thought that I knew about birth. Um, I had been in the, you know, in the birthing room for my sister um, when she had my nephew when I was about 16. So I had been around birth, um, but it was a very different experience that, you know, being with her in the hospital birth and um, interventions and versus being, you know, in this place where it was quiet and it was beautiful and everyone was just all supporting this family. Um, and I just knew like, this is what I was supposed to be doing. And so it kind of morphed into all the different ways that I've done it. Um, but I really just do it because I think, you know, I'm just supposed to be doing it, (laughs) you know, like it's, I can't imagine what else I would be doing. I'm just so connected to the process 
of birth and postpartum and supporting families. And I'm just really good at it too. <laughs> did Did you feel um, differently about it after you had your own kids? I did. Um, there was always a part of me because I was doing this work for about eight years before I had my first child because I like I started young and I had my first at 28. Um, and so I I feel like I had more um, confidence in the work. Like I knew that I was good at what I was doing, but I still felt this a bit of like disconnect and like this is what I've experienced. I know I can support you, but there was like still a missing piece for me. Mm. Um, I don't say that for everyone because I know plenty of people who do this work and who don't have children and they're amazing at it. But for me, I think the depth that I had after having a child um, really helped me to understand in better ways how to support new families. Um, I don't think I could quantify before having my own children, the level of exhaustion, like I'd seen it, I've been around it, but like feeling it in my own body and feeling like I'd been through a car accident, (laughs) having a kid was different than just understanding like, okay, you're tired and I need to support you. Um, and so I think it definitely has changed, um, me really having the empathy for what the process really is in this time. And even though I felt pretty good, you know, after having, uh, all my babies, it really taught me the, the importance of slowing down, Mm -hmm. um, ways that I didn't really understand before having kids. And now do you, do you primarily do, um, postpartum doula work as opposed to birth doula work? Yes. I mean, every now and then there are clients who are able to convince me to do their birth, (laughs) but, um, one due to my travel schedule, because I do travel a lot, um, you know, I mostly do postpartum. Uh, I, even when I started this work, I started as a birth doula and it was very clear to me early on that I felt more of a calling to postpartum and that I just really knew how to, um, work myself out of a job in that sense, like that people felt really competent and ready to parent after I was there. And that felt really good to me, this ability to be able to hand over the sense of agency of like, you have everything that you need, you have the intuition, you know exactly how to parent this child that you brought into the world and to really help to build that confidence. I just felt that I was really good at that piece of you know, making sure that they didn't see me as their like link to be like good parents that they could take from me, uh, but then feel like, you know, they had that sense of competency afterwards. And so um, it's pretty quickly in my career that I kind of start to focus more on postpartum. I think it's amazing that there's not more of a focus on on that postpartum yeah. phase, because we talk about birth and, and then I find, you know, after everyone focuses on the actual birth, then what people talk a lot about is breastfeeding and and the baby's sleep, um, which are all important. But for me, there wasn't a focus on how I would feel as a a mum and kind of the identity shift that goes along with that. So I think having someone like you there to support you in that postpartum phase is an incredible, service is the wrong word, um, honour gift I don't know what the right word is but I think it's I think it's amazing work it it, I mean it is amazing work um and I think the one thing I would add to that shift of having my own kids is that I didn't understand that identity shift yes uh that happened in the way um and even once you have the baby you're not even really aware of how much you've shifted um and I have a really good story about that so you know when I had my um oldest I was in grad school getting my 
my master's in social work. And so I had him about three weeks before we, before I graduated. Um, and so with my two week old, I was going back doing presentations and <laughs> finishing up oh. my master's. Um, and so during that time, before I even had him, I had, you know, made, um, had interviewed, I got hired for a position for when I was going to leave. Like they knew I was having the baby and they were like, okay, you can start at four months. Like it was like the best opportunity. Like they had childcare on site. Like it couldn't have been a better thing for a new parent who wanted to go into the workforce. Um, and so, you know, here comes now I have my four month old, I'm going off to do the work and, you know, day one, I had a nervous breakdown in my office of like, I'm just not ready to be apart from my child. Mm. And I had made these decisions as a different person than I was sitting there with a four month old. Like I made these decisions as a six month pregnant woman who hadn't birthed a child yet. And so the person who was now in this office was not the same person. And I didn't realize that was going to happen. And so there was a lot of like, okay, this brain is different. Like this, the priorities are different. And I wasn't expecting to be such a shift. And it was like a really difficult time because, you know, I'm like not a person who changes commitments or I'm not someone who just leaves something. Um, and I ended up leaving that position on day two. Um, and I felt really bad about it, but you know, it was the best decision for me to spend that time home, um, you know, with my little one. And I didn't really expect that at all during pregnancy. I think slowly um, matrescence is starting to be spoken about more often and more openly in Australia. And I'm wondering how other cultures handle this transition into motherhood. Like, is there a lot of discussion about it in the States, for example? Not really. I mean, there's always a talk about like your relationship's going to change and, you know, your priorities shift, but it doesn't really put into proper detail that you are completely broken down to the core and have completely reorganized your brain and you are a new person. Like, I don't think that they put it into those terms. And so people, you know, are confused about like, I've had this baby. I know that people say I should be feeling X, but I'm feeling confused. I'm feeling guilty. I'm feeling lots of different things that I wasn't expecting to feel in this process. Um, And so I think a little bit we're starting to talk about it in the States, but not in a way that I feel like the mass of people that are having children really know what to expect, um, you know, with this identity shift. And have you observed any more or less challenges for women in regards to this, depending on which, like what culture they live in? For sure. I mean, I think in the States, it's a very work driven culture. Um, And so, you know, I always say to people, you know, having a child is going to open up this portal for you to like have this opportunity to really discover who it is that you want to be, what you want to do. Like, and it's one of those kind of times in life that you have this opportunity to take that level Mm -hmm. of like confidence, energy, whatever you want to call it to kind of, you know, make your best life. Um, And so I feel like uh, at, you know, at this stage, people have the opportunity to really decide like, you know, maybe the job that I was doing isn't really worth these eight hours away from my child. Mm. You know, I have people who say, you know, I thought I really wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, but I really love my work. How do I, you know, bridge this? Like, I thought that I was going to just, you know, be at home and that, you know, would quote unquote be enough. And I always tell people, like, it's not about not being enough. Um, It just means that, like, you get to do more than just that. It's not, you know, one being better than the other. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that here. A lot of my girlfriends have been uh, really competent and um, 
professional within their within their working lives and they go from that to then having their baby and feeling like they don't know what they're doing and feeling really incompetent. Do you see a lot of that within your work? Oh, yes, yes, yes. A lot of it in my work, you know, I tend to deal with like super driven women, they're CEOs of their company, they're, you know, high profile actresses, like they're at the top of their game. And then they're just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to burp him. I don't know how to change him. I don't know, like, like I don't know anything. And it feels kind of crushing because they were expecting to come in and crush it, you know, because they do it in every other place of their life. Uh, and so for a lot of people, you know, the humbling of like, this is a whole new territory that I don't know anything about. Um, and I'm actually afraid of something that is seven pounds <laughs> and much smaller than me. Uh, it, it's an awakening. Like I remember like, you know, for me, like I, before having kids, I didn't keep a calendar. Like everything was my head. Yes. Um, and I had this point in postpartum where my friend called me. She's like, oh, are, we, are you, you know, are you still coming to lunch? I was like, what? <laughs> like, I, like, we had lunch and she's like, oh, yeah. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And then literally five minutes later, someone else called. Like, I double booked on the same day and forgot both. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, the brain is not the same anymore. Okay, I now keep a calendar. Um, but it was so different for me. Like, I felt so sharp, mm. you know, before, like, it was like a blow kind of to my, you know, ego a bit. Like, why am I not able to like maintain all of this? Like people have been having babies forever. Like, why am I falling apart? Um, you know, and so I had to really learn to see that the priority in my brain had just shifted into caring for this person. And I had to just reorganize the way that I did my life. And I think that's something that most of my clients are dealing with. We find also in, in Australia, there's a massive, um, emphasis and a lot of opinion on breastfeeding and some mums feel a lot of pressure and then shame and guilt if they can't breastfeed if they're unable to or they choose not to do you see that kind of pressure in the countries that you work in for sure um not the case in France, but in the United States for sure there's a lot of pressure um to breastfeed your baby uh, and it's actually one of the reasons I became a lactation consultant. Um, in my community, there was like, you know, the one-stop shop that everybody went if they had breastfeeding problems. They were like the only game in town. And I had spent some time convincing one of my clients to go there. She had twins, um, was working so hard to breastfeed them. I'm talking about like breastfeeding them 12 times a day, pumping eight times. A day. I mean, it was just like, she was like putting her heart into it for like a month straight. And it was like, at this point I was a doula and I wasn't a lactation. So I was like, it was beyond my scope of practice to kind of help her bridge the gap because they weren't getting enough. She wasn't making enough milk. Um, and so I convinced her to go see these lactation consultants. You know, we get there and, you know, she um, says, okay, feed one of them, you know, show me what it looks like. And she's like, oh, you're not making any milk. It's like, okay, I know. That's why we're here. Like, you know, we're here for the suggestions on how to change that. She feeds the other one. She was like, oh yeah, even less milk now. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, this is not feeling very helpful. <laughs> and so it kind of went on with her kind of just like giving like, you know, we can try this, but you know, I don't know, like, um, and then at one point, you know, the mom, she asked mom if she had been supplementing them, you know, they were born at four and five pounds. So we were obviously feeding them with formula and she was um, doing some pumping and I don't even remember what it was at the time it was, I think called carnation good star or whatever. She was asking, you know, what she was using and she told her and she said, you know, you know, Nestle killed 6 million babies in Africa. <laughs> and so the mom was like, uh, no, I didn't know that, you know? And so she basically writes this, like, you can try this and try that, but I'm like, I don't know if it's going to work. And, you know, charge her double for the both babies. And then we went in the car and the mom cried and never breastfed again. Oh, that's awful. 
And it was just so like, just demeaning and shaming. And I was like, this is not what it should look like. It should look like me giving you my opinion about how I can help, but also supporting you in ways if, you know, maybe you have to choose to, you know, formula feed, or you want to choose to formula feed your baby that should be more about having all the information before you make that decision and not being a judgment about that decision. And so there's an enormous amount of pressure in the States. Um, We also have seen a big shift in the States where, you know, 30 years ago, the people who breastfed were people who were poor, low income. And now there's a privilege in breastfeeding because they can, people can afford to get fancy, you know, breast pumps that fit into your bra and that are wireless and cordless, or they have jobs that have breastfeeding rooms. And so we're seeing the shift in the States that, you know, most people who are breastfeeding are going to be coming from middle to, you know, upper class communities um, and often being um, non BIPOC people. Um, and we're seeing the decline happening with people who are in working class, low income, um, or marginalized communities. Do you see um, that gap between people who have a lot of money and people who don't have a lot of money um, in terms of birth as well? Because in Australia, we're, we're very lucky. Our health and hospital care is widely accessible, regardless of if you have private health or not. But is that, that quite different in the States? It's quite different in the States. One, obviously, because we don't have single payer healthcare. So we don't have universal healthcare. So, you know, just the opportunities that people have who have health insurance versus those who don't um, is something that um, it, it really changes what people's options are in birth. And so, you know, I have had two hospital births and I had a home birth. Um, you know, my home birth, I paid out of pocket. So that's something that the average, you know, working class family may not have five $5,000 to pay out of pocket to cover um, birthing in a space that felt the best for me. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are having to choose where they birth based on what their hospital is going to pay um, or what they can afford. And so that doesn't always mean it's the best fit for you or the place that you feel most safe. Um, and so there's just a lot of, you know, opportunity in healthcare in general, particularly with birthing. Um, if you have money, if you have private health insurance, um, that you're just open to, you know, better doctors, better facilities, um, people who listen to you in ways they may not listen to you. If you are on state insurance, you just get who you get. Um, and it's not that type of curated care that women need and deserve when they're birthing. Um, do you think that there's an answer to that? Oh yeah, universal healthcare would be the answer. <laughs> but <laughs> let's see when that comes together with the fifty plus states of America. Uh, but that would be the answer: is that people have access to quality healthcare. Um, that we, um, you know, the other thing that would you know really increase that would be if. Uh, midwifery, and I'm not talking about just certified nurse midwives, but lay midwives, um, professional, like licensed midwives who've done more of the apprenticeship model, who aren't nurses, if they were covered under, you know, government funded insurance, that would allow people at all, you know, socioeconomic um, levels to be able to access the kind of care that they really, really need and deserve, Um, which is incredibly important in the States right now where, you know, Black women are dying four times as much as white women in childbirth. Um, if they had, you know, if most of them, and it's not about socioeconomic, really, in that case, um, whether it could be someone who is a millionaire with a PhD, um, has the same opportunity to unfortunately pass in childbirth, someone who 
um, is a high school dropout. So in the case of black women, it's not even related to socioeconomic. It's not having people who um, believe them when they say that they're in pain or that they are suffering. Um, it's not having people who are providing culturally competent care. Um, and then so if they had more of that ability to really choose providers um, who really saw them, validated them, took the chance to know them that they felt safe with, we would see a big difference in the outcomes. Do you see that in France as well? Do you do a lot of work in France or do you primarily work in the States? Um, I don't do birth work in France, but I am connected into this um, community here. I do more lactation when I'm um, in this part of the world. Um, but what I can say, obviously, France has universal health care. Mm-hmm. And so um, they have one of the best outcomes in the world when it comes to what happens to women after birth and during birth. They have the lowest maternal death rate. Um, and that is across cultural, across race. And so I know that has to do with the fact that they um, have a system where every Everyone gets um, to be seen and served regardless of their income. Um, And so I think that in itself changes when people all have access to the same level of healthcare. Why do you think it is that, say, Black women in France are more believed or when they say, you know, what's happening with their body, they're taken seriously, whereas that's not the case in the States? Um, well, very simple racism and bias. Mm-hmm. And not to say that there isn't that in, you know, in France, it's just a different, comes in different vehicles. And so, I mean, America has a longstanding history with racism, you know, against Black Americans, which hasn't been solved. And so the same people who, um, you know, might, you know, discriminate against someone, uh, you know, that they're in every day, those same people are nurses, they're doctors, they're, they're in the field. And so those beliefs carry with them into their work, the stereotypes that they make, um, the idea, like they did a, this is back in 2018, I think they did a study in um, medical schools. And you had people in 2018 saying that Black people didn't feel pain as much as white people. These are medical students. Uh, and so, you know, if that is ingrained, you know, they're going to believe that someone is stronger than they are, or they don't have to pay his attention. You know, one of my colleagues said when she was having her baby, she was feeling a lot of pain and asking for more medication. And the nurse told her, look, I'm not your drug dealer. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Uh, you know, we're talking about someone who is a college educated entrepreneur. This was the kind of treatment that she got when she was like in the throes of delivering her baby. And so we just know that bias is one of the issues because it's not a case of socioeconomic, um, you know, uh, levels that is, is contributing to the fact of these deaths um, across the board. And so it's just people not having the cultural awareness um, and they just, you know, aren't listening to the needs of these women. Um, and I wouldn't say that that is not happening uh, in France either. Like, you know, I think if you would talk to people who um, particularly thinking about Muslim women or women who are wearing hijabs or probably also being discriminated against and assumptions are being made. Um, but I think because of the universal health care and the checks and balances that happen in the system, there's certain things that have to be done, certain types of care they have to provide in order to maintain their licenses in a way that they don't have to in the States. It's really interesting hearing how different things are in the States and I need to I need to have more discussions about race in our own country too because I'm very uneducated about it. Um, I can't imagine being in that situation. You know, I'm, I'm a, a white middle-class woman. Exactly. You know, giving birth is so um, primal and so personal and to be in that situation and not be listened to would just be horrendous. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's so prevalent, you know, I think about, I'm sure in Australia, if you were to talk to Indigenous women, uh, you know, Aboriginal, Aboriginal women, they probably would have similar things to say about how they're treated in the space. And so with my third, who's four, um, my baby, I, um, you know, went to, I should mention that my second birth was 56 minutes <laughs> from beginning to end. And so when I started having those pains with number three, I was like, okay, this was going to be a hospital birth. I was like, I think we should leave now. It's been two minutes. Um, and so, you know, I'm not a person myself. I'm, I'm a generally calm person. And so I probably present as being, you know, less far along in birth than I am if you're not, you know, really paying attention. And so, you know, we go to the hospital at this point, it's like, you know, 45 minutes into the process and, um, you know, we get there, they're checking me in. And so in, in the States, I'm sure it's the same in um, Australia. Like when you first come to hospital, they usually put you in triage. Like you're not given a room yet until they assess like where you are or they like, haven't really admitted you. Mm. And triage, like literally you're in a closet, basically. Like there's a curtain, like it's kind of open. There's like a shared bathroom. Like you're not in a private space. Um and so I, you know, I'm telling the doctor, you know, I'm in labor. Uh, and um, he was like, no, you're not in labor. Um, I was like, well, my water broke and, you know, I'm in labor. And he was like, oh, maybe you peed yourself. <laughs> um, and you confused it for your water break. And I was like, mm, no, I'm pretty sure baby number three that I'm in labor. Um, and what his exact words for me were, what's important is that I know that you're in labor, not that you think that you're in labor. Um, wow. Now, my I'm also anticipating, like, I know where this goes. I'm having these waves are getting stronger. And so I'm kind of like, you know, waiting for this, you know, two by four to hit me that is labor. And I'm having to convince a medical provider that I'm in labor. Um, and so he did not admit. And so we're in this kind of closet room situation. And that means that like I'm birthing in public basically, because mm -hmm. this is just like a lobby kind of situation where I'm going to the bathroom and having like to go out where there are people, um, you know, and at one point I'm in this like triage room, the bed, the bed is like a cot more so than an actual bed. So it, it got too uncomfortable. So I'm literally on the floor, the cold hospital floor laboring um, and kind of thinking like, you know, why am I not being given just like, you know, 
even if you don't believe me, like, is this, like, I know what I need to bring this baby into the world. And like, I'm supposed to do it in these conditions. Mm. Um, and did the they part check that, you physically? Um, they did not. And so uh, at this point, the big clincher to the story is that I worked in that hospital in that same department. Um, and so within about 30 minutes, I guess, you know, the powers that be realized, oh, you know, and so then the whole brigades came and like, oh, let's get you a room. Let's da 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 da. And, you know, I tell people that day I didn't have on the fancy white coat. I was just another black lady coming in to have a baby and no one cared. Um, and, you know, I was able to get into a room uh, and 20 minutes later, I was holding my baby despite not being in labor. And, and, you know, and I tell people that's a happy story because he wanted us to go home. He wanted me to go into a car and possibly have a baby and be in distress and, you know, maybe not um, have a healthy baby or a healthy mom. And so, you know, my story, I'm one of the lucky ones. I got to go home with my baby. I've got to birth three babies and bring them home alive. And a lot of people don't get that. And I'm someone who had, you know, 18 years in maternal child health. And this happened to me and I knew how to advocate for myself. I also had my husband there, my doula to advocate, but so many people here don't have that. And so we see a lot of these outcomes coming just from people deciding that they know more than this woman knows about her body. Yeah, I, I just it's it's baffling and mortifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was you know it it was so demeaning because I work in the hospital, knowing like on a this is a Tuesday night, we got thirty beds. Like really, like you're gonna have a woman be on her hands and on the floor when you could just like kick her down a bed. Like let's let's just you move know, me. It's not like you know, this is a full census and like everyone, all the beds are full. It was kind of like he just had the power to decide you know, where I was allowed to birth my baby. You didn't know him? No, I did. I knew of him, but like we didn't interact a lot. And so never saw him again. You know, a new doctor came and he was amazing and like everything changed about the situation. Um, but it could have been a really bad outcome had, you know, me and my husband are not have known um, and been sent home, you know, to do this in a car somewhere by ourselves. Cause that's what it would have happened. Like it would have ended up having the baby in a car. Um, you know, it just, um, it really solidified, you know, I had been doing this work to improve birth for women, particularly women of color at this point. And so for this to happen, it was kind of just like, whoa, um, this is like, you know, out of hand. And I'm like, I have a, you know, it's a good ending to my story, uh, but it still shouldn't have happened. And so what kind of work do you do um, within your, the National Association of Birth Workers of Colour? So, you know, I really started this with the idea when I became a doula in 2001 um, in L.A., sadly, you know, I think there was one other black doula in the city of Los Angeles. Anyone knows how big L.A. is. It's a really big place. So um, um, and there's a lot of people of color. And so it was, I just couldn't understand, like, how is it? that I'm the only one there just wasn't um, a roadmap. So like for the first, I want to say 12 to 15 years of my life, I never really saw women of color. Um, I really wasn't, you know, servicing too many women of color as well as, you know, with my services. And so, you know, I knew that there were women just like me who needed the support. I knew there were people like me who could provide that support. Um, and so I just really wanted to like give to women in the field things that I didn't have um, in the first kind of, you know, 15 years of my career and understand again, things like these things that are happening in childbirth to women of color and being able to provide um, that sense of, 
validation to women who are experiencing these things. And so I really just wanted to support. So we provide education about how they can grow their practices. Um, We talk a lot about providing culturally competent care and what that looks like to families um, and teaching people who might not have that education or understand what's happening, how they can make sure they're creating spaces and environments that aren't harmful to BIPOC women as a whole. You've also done a lot of work with um, some very well-known mums. Um, you worked with Mandy Moore and Julia Stiles. Um, how did you start to work with celebrities? Um, actually, I tell people, I don't know, but <laughs> referrals. <laughs> um, I was just referred, to be honest. Um, obviously, I live in LA, and so there's lots of celebrities in LA, so given that. Um, but I just, you know, my whole work to this point has been through referral. Even our agency is 98% referrals from clients. Uh, so I was doing the work parents were referring me. And, you know, I feel that once you work with one family and you haven't sold pictures of their baby and you haven't told their business to the tabloids, you tend to, you know, they tend to start referring you to their friends, but they see you as kind of like a safe space to be able to um, have this really intimate experience. And so it kind of just came from there. Um, And so all of them to this point have, you know, been via referral. Um, I've had some just literally message on the website and I don't know how they found, but, you know, uh, but I think it comes from, you know, I've built a reputation of taking confidentiality seriously. You know, in general, I know that I'm good at what I do and helping parents provide that level of routine and knowledge and education that they're ready to fly when I'm done. And so um, that word got out and they came. Do you think that celebrities face any more or less or different challenges after they have a baby compared to non-celebrity mums? Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, like every mom, like they're still moms, they're dealing with all the things that we just deal with in postpartum. But think about dealing with that and having people taking pictures of you or your baby 12 hours after you've had your baby or trying to sneak into your birthing room and take pictures of your vagina. Like those are things that I don't need to necessarily have to worry about. (laughs) Like no one's trying to take pictures of my vagina at birth. Um, You know, so it's that kind of stuff, which is a scrutiny of like wanting to like be excited and share about what you're doing with your baby or what you're like going through and having, you know, a million people saying like, oh, you know, are you doing that? Or you're wearing your baby this way? Or you have your carrier on wrong? Or like, oh, like, have you seen the loops on your seatbelts, you know, for your kids? There's just so much scrutiny on every move they make. They don't get to actually share their experience in a way that we all get to when we have our baby. Because like, I don't have a million people that are going to give me their opinion about what they think about how I'm parenting. Um, And so I think a lot of it ends up being a bit lonely and that they can't share those everyday things that we might post on Instagram, that we might post on Facebook without fear that we're going to be attacked. Um, And most of my clients don't have that ability to kind of just share so freely. I imagine that goes back to what we were saying before in terms of, you know, doubting yourself. And, you know, a lot of these women that that you would work with have been top of their field. Um, And then all of a sudden, you know, they're they're being a new mum as well, regardless of what their job's been previously. Um, And so they might have all of that self-doubt, but then on top of that, they've all, they've got that external opinion coming at them 24-7. Yeah, yeah, external opinion, not to mention photography. Like how many women want to be taking want to take pictures after they've had a baby? You know, and so 
you're expected to bounce back and have abs and have all these things, you know. That was my next, that was my next question. You know, your body changes so much. You might gain or lose weight. Your hair can Mm -hmm. fall out. You might just feel rubbish anyway. Um, You might be recovering from whatever kind of birth you had. Do you think that celebrities handle those body changes differently? Yeah, but also some of them are like, you know, freaks of nature, like Mandy, who <laughs> looks like she walked off a red carpet, regardless <laughs> of just having a baby. Um, so if her and Megan are listening to this, I just want them to know they're super freaks of nature. <laughs> um, that, like, you know, I think that they deal with it in general in their own way. You know, I don't know their process. And, you know, but I would say that um, there is an expectation and not so much of their own internal, like maybe you just have to get back to work and your work is you know, looking hot, if that's your work, yeah. you know, you have to get back to it. Like, you know, when I was working with Megan Fox, she had to go shoot a movie, you know, shortly after our time. And so, you know, if it's your job to look a certain way, you have that pressure to make that happen. So, you know, I wouldn't say that, like, you know, that they are personally concerned with the way that they look. I don't, I think that is an unfair. And I think that's a lot of people assume like, oh, they care more about being thin or whatever. And I don't think the people that I've worked with, that has not been my experience. I feel like their moms, like everyone else, they want to obviously be healthy and make sure that they're nourishing their bodies and their babies. Um, but, you know, the realities of their job is that they do have certain things they have to do to perform their job. And so um, a lot of them have to get back to, you know, seeing a trainer or doing things because they have certain obligations that they've made in their careers. Well, I know um, I saw on Instagram that Mandy Moore went back to work a month after she had Gus and you helped her during that time. You know, I mean, going back to work in any capacity after a month would just be so huge. But yeah, to have that pressure to look a certain way, you know, whether that's contractually or otherwise. Yeah, I imagine that's a lot. You know, it could be, you know, at the same time, I think, you know, you know, someone like Mandy, who's just such a gracious person, also realizes that they have a lot of support, too, that maybe the average mom doesn't have. Um, and so there's pros and cons to everything. And I feel like, you know, I wouldn't say that, you know, a celebrity mom is doing, you know, has it better than someone who isn't. Um, but I think, you know, I tend to work with really kind, thoughtful people, regardless of what their career is. And so the women that I work with who do happen to be, you know, in the ent- entertainment industry also are extremely humble and acknowledge like the privilege and the ability to have someone like me to be there with them, to be on set, to be like in the green room at the Oscars and helping them like, you know, get out of this gown to pump for 10 minutes, you know. Um, and so I think that. There are different realities, you know, but there's also, I'm just thankful that I am able to support them while they do this. And I think they are too. What are some of the most common things that you see new mums struggle with? Um, Obviously, there's a big change to your relationship when you have a baby that a lot of people aren't expecting or like the roles that we thought in our heads that people weren't going to be doing. Maybe they didn't do the role the way that we thought they were going to do it or we didn't get the help that they thought they were going to get. So I think that's difficult for a lot of people to kind of reimagine and get back to a sense of like balance and homeostasis with like the couple and the relationship. Um, And so I think that's typical for a lot of people. I think particularly for women in general, managing a work um, career and being a mother is probably the thing that I deal with the most because I tend to work with a lot of career driven women. And so I think that's always a struggle, this, you know, the guilt of being away versus doing something that really lights me up and, you know, is a part of who I am and balancing that with being a really present and connected mother is something that I think people are always struggling to find that balance with. 
how do you think we can find that balance a bit, maybe a bit better than we currently are? I think it's more a lot of what we're telling ourselves and how we talk to ourselves about the experience and what you make things mean. Um, Because, you know, I love the work that I do. I can't imagine not doing this work. And I know that for me personally, it makes me a better mother because I'm super fulfilled in the work that I do. And so, um, you know, like any mom, I have some guilt, but I say that I'm pretty, pretty solid in this fact that I can be a good mother and be really good at what I do and I don't have to choose. And so I think part of this work has to happen within ourselves to really validate that anything that, you know, makes me happier, more fulfilled is going to be good for my children. Um, and, you know, I think personally that's what we have to do, but as a culture, I think there's a lot of shaming and expectation, um, that is put onto mothers that makes them want to confirm and like to do everything. I would say you can do it all, not at the same time and do it all well. Mm. And so there's definitely times where I'm a better entrepreneur than I am. I'm a mom and there's time being a better mom than I am an entrepreneur. Um, and so, you know, this idea of work-life balance, I don't think exists. I always talk about work-life integration and knowing that things are going to ebb and flow and some parts of my life need more attention. And I give that the attention there. Um, and it doesn't mean that, you know, my kids are going to feel abandoned and neglected. Like, you know, my husband was equally there when we made them. And so he can equally <laughs> show up to support them. Them. Um, and I think it's just a lot of that that has to happen. And also for women to really set boundaries on the partnerships they are getting into. You know, when I hear stories from moms like, oh, my husband wouldn't do X, Y, and Z. And like, I come home from work and I have to clean and cook. And I'm like, why are you doing that? Why, why are you doing that? Not why is he, I understand why he is like, that's a cool gig <laughs> to just have someone come and do all these things, you know? And I think for women, like we have to take some ownership on how we're setting up those boundaries and those expectations of our roles within the home. We have another able-bodied person um, to support us and our children. Yes. You're not the mom of your partner. Exactly. But, you know, and I tell people like, you know, um, but those are things that we set up, you know? So often we're just like, oh, these men, da, da, da. I'm like, they're just doing what people are allowing them to get away with. It doesn't mean that, you know, a lot of men haven't been socialized in, in such a way that opens a door for this. And so I guess if we're really thinking about it, it really comes down to like what examples we're showing to our boys and girls and the home around gender and roles, um, you know, so that they aren't having these expectations that they're going to kick their foot up, you know, when they have this baby, that it's an expectation that they're part of that process. What are your top tips or advice for women, um, in terms of navigating their matrescence, in terms of their um, sense of identity and sense of self after they become a mum? I mean, it might sound really simple, but I always tell people like, you need to get a life. Like your life can't just be your kids, <laughs> you know? And I think we think that the job is to be 100% focused on our kids and being like CEO of the mom uh, job. But, you know, they need to have something outside of that that fulfills them. Doesn't mean you have to go to work. You got to just find something that's fulfilling you um, so that you can really be doing this job well. And so that's something that I really talk to moms about is like, you can be a good mom and do things outside of your children. So what are the things that you loved doing before you had a child? Like, was that reading a book? Was that taking a day here or there by yourself? You know, was it going, you know, dancing, whatever that is, um, you don't need to lose that a hundred percent when you have kids um, because you'll look up and they're going to be, you know, 14 with their friends and you're going to be lost as to like, what is it that I do with my life? Who am I at this point? And so I would just tell them, don't forget who you are, even though you're learning um, who this new part of yourself is um, and fulfill those things, you know, do those things that bring you joy. I think that's excellent advice. <laughs> you know, the other thing with that identity piece is just to like 
be really, you know, empathic with yourself. Like this is a process. Like you don't have to have it all figured out, you know, in this first, even first year of postpartum. Just know that you're going to be having ebbs and flows and realizing what feels good and what doesn't feel good and changing what your priorities might have been. And that's okay. Um, And so just knowing that's a bit of a process and that, you know, knowing you're not behind if you're still figuring this out when you have a three year old. (laughs) Well, I wonder because you're at um, you've got kids at at various ages up to 14. Do you go through sort of different stages of matrescence as your kids get older or change phases themselves? Yes, for sure. You know, I had my first at 28 and my last at 38. So, you know, just for myself, there was a lot of personal growth and what I understood about being me and what I understood about motherhood change. You know, I always say my poor 14 year old, like he's our guinea pig, like, you know, he... (laughs) He got all the inexperience and like all the testing and like now we're slightly perfecting it for this last one. Um, But I feel like I, you know, each time I let go a little bit more on the process, like I wanted to control um, in the beginning, like this is what we're doing. This is how we're doing the baby food. And I'm going to be doing this and we're going to do that. And now I'm just like, we'll see what happens. (laughs) Like, Let's see how it goes. And so I think that level of pulling back and kind of just going with the flow and seeing what happens um, creates a calmer environment. And like that thing that I always say to all my clients is calm is contagious. Um, And so I'm just a a more peaceful at calm mom than I was when I first started. And so that obviously um, impacts the way that I parent because I realize that most things are just going to be okay. So what's something that you would say or what's something that you do say to mums to empower them? Um, you know, whether people believe it or not, like I certainly believe in, in mother's intuition. Mm. Um, and so I really let them know, like, you know, every, like your baby chose you, there's no way you grew a baby in your body or a baby adopted and came to you. However, it had your baby came to, they chose you. And so they chose you for specific qualities that you have to be able to take them on the path that they chose. Um, and so you may not trust your intuition right now because it's new to you, but I'm telling you that it's there. And so it's like a muscle that you have to keep working and practicing um, and getting back up. And eventually that muscle gets really strong and you're really connected to it in ways um, that you don't feel today, but it's there and kind of just, you know, helping them to understand that it's kind of something like, you know, it, it doesn't happen that you have your baby and you all of a sudden snap your fingers and you know exactly what their needs are that, you know, intuition is something that over time ages like a fine line um, and they just have to lean into it. And for a lot of people knowing that it isn't something that's instant and they, they haven't, you know, they don't have something less than what someone else has can be, you know, inspiring. Thank you so much for talking to me today. This has been an amazing conversation and I've learned so much. No, thank you for having me. I love that you're putting this into the world and and having the opportunity for Australian moms and moms everywhere to be able to hear more about this identity shift that I think isn't being talked about enough. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Oh, all done. Thank you so much. I think you hopefully got what you wanted or needed. Oh yeah, no, it was just amazing. It was, it was so amazing and really enlightening for me. And I, I, um, I'm interested in in finding out how, you know, do different cultures do it better than we're doing it? Because I think we're kind of fucking it up a bit in terms of of matrescence and and how we're not handling it um, as a society. Um, So, yeah, I think it's it's always interesting to hear um, different perspectives and from different countries and different cultures and different societies, um, which I haven't – you're my first non-Australian guest, so (laughs) – 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we, I've lived all over. And so I had my postpartum for my last baby in Asia, uh, which was a very different experience. Um, And, you know, seeing what it means to live in a true, like, um, community or tribe-like environment where people take care of each other and there's an actual system that's expected to happen in postpartum um, was fantastic. Like I can just, in the way that I felt in that period of time, I was getting massages on a daily basis. I was, you know, having steaming. I had, you know, people caring for me. I was eating warm foods. There were specific things that were supposed to happen that um, I was getting in a very systematized way that I don't think we have in the Western world. So um, I know that for me personally, like I felt the most energized and ready for the world in that time because of how much support um, and care I was getting and being nurtured in that period of time that just doesn't happen in the States or it could happen if you can afford it. And it's that whole, um, you know, when people say it takes a village, I often think Mm -hmm that that's not just to to raise the baby but it's to raise the mom too yeah yeah there's a sense you know all my friends that are you know I have some friends that are you know that are from Africa and the way they talk about like oh yeah like I'm like where's your, like, there's a lady here in France who does my uh hair and she has a little one who's a little bit younger than mine so he's maybe three I was at her house I was like where's your son and she's like oh he's in Senegal I'm like oh okay <laughs> like you know but it's so normal like you know your family just cares for your children in the way that like they're like second moms. Like it's, you know, but here I think we have so much guilt or feel so judged that we sent our child away to go be with family mm. uh, where it didn't, it's not even a thought in their mind. Like family is family. Like, you know, he's as fine with me as he is with my auntie, you know, like there's no difference. Yeah. Um, and I think that real uh, mentality, that village mentality, when it comes to parenting, like we weren't meant to do this alone. Um, and so, you know, <clears throat> I think we struggle so much because we we're trying to do this as if it isn't a team sport. It's a really good way to put it. A team sport, I like it. <laughs> Thank you to Brandy Jordan for enlightening and educating me today. I thoroughly enjoyed our chat. There are links in the show notes to Brandy's website, The Cradle Company, as well as to her new podcast, Dear Dollar with Brandy Jordan. Mummification is produced and hosted by me, Brody Matner. Our beautiful music is composed by Ben Talbot Dunn. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review and subscribe. You'll be notified when a new episode is released and it helps us reach new audiences, which in turn will hopefully help more women feel less alone. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.